We've got some fresh new young talent doing some things that I know you haven't heard before. One, two, three, listen. You gotta have a like the why, and we know our why. So you don't need to reinvent the wheel. Yep. Millions and millions of people have done this already. You can get help, you can get a roadmap, you can save a lot of time, money, and frustration. Welcome to the Value Add Podcast with K and K. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Value Add with K and K. Today we have Rami Cortez. Rami, hey, hey, what's up? <laughs> I'm here. So I'm Rami Cortez. I'm a small scale infill real estate developer, at hub and spoke communities. Uh, we build uh, multifamily projects that are along San Diego's transit corridor spokes in neighborhoods like Hillcrest, Golden Hill, and the likes, and up to some exciting things. Cool. Sounds very sophisticated. It's, that, there were some things in there that were way above my head. So we're, what we'll do is we'll actually dumb that down and what the hell he just said. <laughs> this is the salesmanship that yeah. you need, the, the sizzle that you sell the lenders in the blue suits and they love they So love it. if you're in the industry, you're like, I got that. If you're not, you're like, that sounded like Chinese and Spanish combined. Um, so I was actually, I'm going to tell you guys because you guys are wondering how we met. Yes. Are you ready? Let's hear it. Somebody called me and said, hey, I got this guy. You should meet him. He's flipping a house. And that guy's name was Chris Rogers. Oh, Chris Rogers. Yeah. That's He's funny. like, who's Chris Rogers? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's who it was. It That's was Chris it was. Rogers. But Chris might have got referred to him from somebody else. Mm-hmm. He's a broker, like a apartment broker. You probably, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know who Chris Rogers is. He's but now he at Marcus knew, and But he knew who you were, I think, through a friend. And he was like, this guy, you guys got to meet. And so that's how a lot of this happens, right? So that was, uh, I don't know. Shit, we're that so would have had now. been at least five years 2019, ago. 2019, which is crazy. That yeah. No, I think it was uh, actually like 12, 11 or 12. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it was like, yeah. you're, you're flipping that house where you got into inter- all those historical issues. Oh, I don't know. I think it may have been. Barrio Logan. Yes. There's a house across the street from Thorn Street Brewery. It's a two-story, potentially historic, yellow home now. And uh, now it's going to sound crazy, but it was actually four units, three separate buildings in Barrio Logan, north of the Coronado Bridge on National Avenue, across from Thorn Street Brewery, which now everyone would die to have. And... I bought it for $150,000. I remember. Wow. No, I remember that. It had 23 code violations. <laughs> that's right. That's what it was. Yes, 23 code violations. Wow. And I'm like, 23 code violations. Like, what do you do? Yeah, what do you do? You just fix some stuff. So, Holy shit, that's yeah. what it was. I remember. See? I think it's a good place to start at the – well. No, that was like – was that your start? Was that um, your first deal? No, I had flipped a bunch of deals before that. Uh but, you know, one of the intentions I had when I was flipping is I was always looking long term. And that was I always knew I wanted to be a real estate developer. Uh, my dad started me playing golf at an early age. I would go to Bonita Golf Course and all these guys I would play golf with. I'd ask them what they did. And they said, oh, I'm a real estate developer. And I so had no fun. idea what a developer did. And but it go, sounded cool, right? It sounded cool. Yeah. You know, it was a mystique. They, they were dressed, playing golf all the they time. They dressed how they wanted. They played golf all the time. They drove really fancy cars that they'd throw their clubs in when they were done. And I said, that's what I want to do. And I don't have a fancy car, and I don't get to play golf at the time, so I'm not sure what I'm doing wrong. <laughs> wow. How old were they? Uh, they're probably in their 40s. That's the problem. Like late 40s. You're not there yet. Yeah. Yeah. Soon okay, you will be. You. Thank you. But I don't know. You're pretty dedicated to your craft. 
Because I think you want to be, uh, I think you just want to be smarter, bigger, and the way to do that is you got to be educated. Absolutely. But, you know, going back to my relationship with Kenny is he's been in and out of my life more than he probably knows because uh, he helped me with that flip. And the lender that he referred me to on that project, I actually continued a relationship with. Oh, and right. uh, yesterday, I just signed loan docs for Jump my oh, biggest cool. construction loan to date for a 24,000 square foot mixed use project on the corner of 30th and B and Golden Hill. Congrats. Uh, so signed loan docs yesterday. And I officially, my wife is here in the audience, but I'm officially. Hi, wife. Also, <laughs> I'm also married to John Lloyd for pretty a much $6 million loan, which, yeah. uh, you know, 10 years ago when we met at Gore. Eight years ago, I would have never imagined in my wildest dreams that this is what I'd be working on. I mean, you bought a house for $150,000, and now you've got a $6 million project. That's amazing. That's the loan amount. Not okay, the so size. project size, what, $12 million or yeah, 10 or it's yeah. 13 when it's done. There so. you go. Yeah. Only to That's say that amazing. to just create a, a – for the audience, a position of where I am now and then hopefully fill in the gaps of – how I got there, mm-hmm. so yeah. I don't feel I just continue to flip houses. And if that's the road, they yeah, want tell to be us just great. like your story, yeah, how you got here. Like, uh, how are you here? So I the the first investor I worked with, he he was wondering why I took on all these projects that were just crazy. Twenty three code violations. I took on a project <laughs> that was a house, nobody wanted that property. Nobody wanted that. I took on a house on Euclid, and it was a house that was half finished, and it had the permits had expired, and it was just a framed up 3000 square foot house. But all the while I was flipping these houses, I would take on these challenges where I'd have to work with the city and revive permits. And I would have to bring in wet and dry utilities to this broken development deal on a small scale, a custom home. I'd have to finish widening the street, the curb gutter sidewalk, put up a street light with SDG and E and the investors going like, I thought this was supposed to be like TV. (laughs) (laughs) And I just felt it just, it made sense to me to spend a lot more time and energy on one property, make a lot more money than it would to compete on the lipstick fix type of stuff. And ultimately, that wasn't the strategy that he wanted. So uh, further down the road, I ended up partnering with some friends uh, that uh, provided money. But one of the strategies I had in taking their money is instead of them being a partner in the deal, what they were really doing is becoming a second or mezzanine, which is the the bridge financing above the first lender. And I would either give them a minimum of a return as a lender or a percentage of the equity on the deal. But they had no decision making. They didn't tell me what color the house had to be. They didn't Mm -hmm. tell me what the flooring had to be. All they did is say, here's my dough at escrow when we start and here's the dough I get back when we're done. And, uh, you know, one of those investors is still an investor with me today. Nice. Um, that's a good sign. Yeah, it's a great sign. And yeah, so that's, actually that, good. that was the evolution. And then in 2014, I saw the market shifting and I wasn't doing enough flips to be able to uh, get cozy with these short sale agents. Because when it was REO world, you could just write first hour on market and pick up properties like nothing. But when the market shifted and they were short sales, 
You had to have relationships with these agents. And the people who had those relationships. Like Nick Davison, yeah. Where guys were doing, you know, 40, 50 high deals. Volume. Yeah. High volume. Yeah. And they just wanted someone they could pass all these deals to. Uh, and I didn't have that. But what I realized is that the market shifted from REOs to short sales that we were eventually going to come out of this market. And what I did is I stacked my chips all the while living at home uh, part-time in my parents' spare bedroom and then living with my wife now and, you know, at her place and saving money and stacking chips. And I used that money to buy three residential building lots in the city. And you never imagine it today, but I took an approach that was very hard work intensive and it's the same strategies that's that residential uh, flippers use of sending mailers but i did the same thing for building lots so i worked with my title rep and i scrubbed every vacant piece of land in the metro area of san diego oh my gosh 1500 wow. sites and then i went on google maps and i figured out which one had steep topography which ones didn't have road access all of those things and i rated them by stars and Jesus. went through this and I came up with a hundred properties that I wanted to target. And out of those hundred properties, I bought three, two of those properties. I ended up selling to a neighbor when I was processing the plans. So you didn't even develop. I didn't even develop them. I just got approvals. The neighbor said, we don't want you to block our view of our Canyon. And they actually paid me for them. And then the other one, I actually took all the skills, skills from flipping. And I built a new single family home, a custom home that's, you know, was featured on the front page of San Diego Home Edition, was in a muse- uh, modern architecture design tour, and wow. it's on 8th and Robinson across from Whole Foods in the metro area of Hillcrest. Uh, and I was the owner builder. So not only did I need a, I needed a stepping stone between flips to apartments. And the lender said, we're never going to give you the loans for apartments because you haven't built anything new. So I said, I'm going to build a badass house. I'm going to do it as the owner builder myself with no contractor. And then I'm going to get a bunch of PR and publication around it. And then I'm going to shove it down their throat. And then when I go and ask yeah! them, give it to them. I so love it. That's awesome. That's the, that's the progress. I don't know if I ever saw that house. I have to check it out. I know we've driven by it though. Cause when you said Ethan Robinson, I'm like, we've definitely, I mean, yeah, you can't miss it. Yeah, oh, for sure. Um, what did, just because I was listening to that, what do you think your, uh, strength is? As a developer now, like what do you, I mean, you're obviously really talented at design. Let's be honest. I know that you can brag. I'll brag for you. He doesn't say anything, but what Thanks. do you think your strength is? Well, it's that doesn't, you wouldn't be able to tell by the way I dress. Okay. But, uh, my strength as a developer is probably the, well, there's a, a few traits. One of the biggest is I do this every day, all day. And one of the biggest mistakes I think people make is they try to do real estate as a side hustle Mm -hmm. and they think eventually they're going to gain enough traction to be able to quit their full-time job. And I think it's the complete opposite. I think if you're going after something, you should dip your toes in and you should do one transaction. (laughs) And if you like it and you say, this is for me, then then you should yeah go all in. But to go all in, you, you need to keep your overhead super low and you need to save a lot of money So you can say for one year, I'm going to go all in or for a real estate development project, three years, you're going to say, I'm saving money for three years. I'm going all in and I believe in myself enough to make this. But the challenge is most people have a a standard of living that is so high that it's so difficult to get to that place to go all in and not have a paycheck. They don't want to sacrifice. They don't want to sacrifice. But if you take me doing this every day more than 
40 hours a week, just, you know, morning to night, every day in this business, and you take someone that's an attorney during the day trying to develop real estate on the side, I am growing exponentially. And I don't, you could see on, you know, my social media that I provide tips and tricks and I am just so damn active. I'm an, I'm an open book about what I'm doing and how to do it and the tricks that I use. I like it. And you know, I watched, I don't know if you watch the show billions. Yeah. yeah. So Bobby Axelrod, he has this this (laughs) book. It's like, like he's a real person. To me, me, he's a real person. Yeah. Yeah, Bobby, right. And he has this quote and the quote goes, uh, you know, just because you watched a Bruce Lee movie doesn't know, mean you know karate. I remember exactly. that. Yeah. It's like just because I tell you how to do it doesn't mean you're going to be able to execute on it. And, mm-hmm. you know, what Mark Cuban says it's not in the dreaming, it's in the doing. And for me, it's in the execution. And now I've done it, I don't want to say so many times, but I've been through it repetition of multiple projects that it, I feel that it may be arrogance, I consider it conviction that I can share because I don't feel anyone's going to catch up with me or compete with me uh, because they're either doing it on the side hustle or they're starting after me. Yeah. And, and then and then you're learning from guys that are been 20 years big, that are full-time big. Like, and they're doing yeah. projects that that I'm not competing against. The other aspect exactly. is there's a, I, you know, it's a different perspective. Most people always go, find a mentor, find a mentor, find multiple mentors. And yeah, I believe in having one or two really solid mentors. And I have one solid mentor, Richard Keogh, who was a developer that took me under his wing when I was in my early 20s. And he's given me a tremendous amount of guidance. But what I think people miss a lot is they don't get the mentorship out of their peer group because what they don't realize is that peer group, like you and I meeting, you know, eight years ago and working on something together and what that relationship grows into is that we become the age of those mentors and we create a culture and an environment around each other, what I call cross-pollinization, where we actually share trade secrets to create better businesses for each other. Yeah. Uh, And we do that within our circle and our network. Uh, And that's something I believe strongly on. Tony Robbins has a quote and it's uh, always stuck with me. It's people's lives are a direct reflection of the expectations of their peers. So it's not just birds of a feather flock together, mm-hmm. but it says, you know, you are going to either live up to what your peers expect out of you, or you're going to find another peer group. So the peer group I like to hang with are guys at that, that are a little bit ahead of me, like Absolutely. you, that, you know, social media wise that are doing all this crazy stuff that I was fearful of doing just a few months ago and your business and growth and employees and organization and I try to hang out with these people that are going to drag me up, that have these high expectations, and I'm either going to live into them or you're going to say, dude, you're out. Like, you're not, you're not, I'm, ser- I'm not kidding, right? Yeah. Well, no, no, no. That's yeah. just, that's, I mean, you, well, we you, always say that. I mean, you're, you are who you hang around, yeah. right? I mean, Monsi's like, you're, we've been talking about that, but you are who you hang around. I mean, you're, she's learning that and she's, you know, she's in her 20s, but. That's where you're like a lot of your twenties, like, hey, let's hit the bar, and she's like, actually, I'm trying to do some stuff over here. I really don't have Cheers. time, but <laughs> we have a bar here if you want to hit it. But you know, it's like you got to start making sacrifices and changes. And it's funny. Um, I mean, if you hear me rant on my social media, I'm, I don't know if whoever does, but that's what I keep telling people: is everybody's like, how do I buy apartments and how do I buy more and how do I do this? And I said the first thing you need to do is just like 
You don't need all this fancy shit. We're renting right now. Yeah. We're, I mean, we're exchanging and we're buying uh, our the thirty unit pro- building. That's our largest one too. Yeah, we're buying, yeah. selling wow. two to go into one. Yeah. So we're starting to step up the bigger deals too. And then we're trying to buy, you know, like Crystal and I goals within two years to be at a hundred units. So we're pushing. We're pushing. How many years? Hundred two years. Yeah. So we're pushing, we're pushing, and we have a plan, and we can get there. But the thing is, I tell people, I'm not sitting here. You know, I don't want a fancy car and all this shit and house. It's like, look, I'm just focused on getting here to like my thing is I want to get assets to pay for this shit. So that's who we're around. We're around people that own apartment buildings that say I own this much. It makes this much money and I can afford this lifestyle. But everybody wants it right now. And it's like, what? Why? Who cares? It's the same. It, it just it's, just worry about that later. Who cares? And you're more focused on just building your craft and getting better and better at what you do. And that's what we are. Well, I don't I don't care about what other people have because I don't want what they want. Exactly. Like that's it at the yeah. end of the day. I don't want what they want. I want to do what I want. Eventually, I want to do what I want when I want to do with it. With your money. With, the, with my money, with the people I want to do it with. That, that's our goal. That, that's I always us. say, people say, that's what us. do you want to do? I'm like, I want to do whatever I want, with when I money, want, how I want. Yeah. I'm like, going to yeah. change. It's not always going to yeah. be the same. I don't want to close yeah. another deal to make money. To, I want it to have my own shit, and you're the, right there. Exactly. The other the other way I've heard it is uh, an FU position. And the FU <laughs> position is you, know, you either have cash flow coming in to pay for everything that you need, and... When someone comes to you, a client that says, can you do this deal for me? And, you know, they're a pain in the ass to deal with that. You have the position. You probably wouldn't say it, but in your head to say, no, F you. And if you could come from that position, I think your your passion of what you want to do and the value you can add that you're actually going to grow exponentially when you get to that point, because it's going to be it's going to be your passion. It's going to be from your gut of where you think you're adding value and that's the goal I want to get to. Obviously, like you guys, I'm not there. So when I talk about these deals that I'm doing, I'm the you know, active developer and I own like this much of it. Yeah, but you're and, doing. Yeah, I'm doing it. And it's, you know, there's also, you know, multiple projects. I have selling a condo in Mission Hills right now. That's a little investment that I want to take the cash to something I can add value to. And then uh, there's the 13 apartments in uh in Mission Hills, Hillcrest, that'll be wrapping up in May. The project That's in the Golden. one I visit you on, right? Yep. It's a cool so that'll wrap up in May, the project in Golden Hill. And then there's another side I own with uh, my partner on El Cajon Boulevard and Texas Street. And there's just too much going on. So that's actually in escrow right now. Knock on wood, it gets wrapped up. So all of these things, it's leading to the point that you're describing is ultimately having paid off real estate or cash flow that's coming in to decide to do whatever you want. And when people think, well, yeah, you, you live a, do you live a modest lifestyle? You know, up until last year, me and my wife, when friends would ask us, Hey, we're going to dinner on Friday night. We literally wouldn't even meet them for dinner because we didn't want to go spend 80. We didn't want to get stuck in that dinner where everyone orders a bunch of shit for appetizers. And it's like, just split it up. <laughs> yeah. six oh, and, then, yeah. and, then, and then the guy that orders, the couple that orders it all, they order all a bunch of fancy drinks. And then when the bill comes, they say, oh, just throw in your card. It's like, no, no, I'm on a budget. I'm not playing that game. So we would actually ditch dinners up until this year as, you know, we've come further along. That's nice you support them on that. That's awesome. Yeah, and and we a lot of people don't. They'd be like, "Come on, let's just go." Like, and we, you know, if you know, in our loft that we live in, we live in a loft downtown. I walk to work. My wife works from home, and we have 
one car. It's a 2014 Ford Edge that I bought salvaged for 12 grand cash. Mm-hmm. Look at this guy. I love it. We, we share the car. If someone has to get somewhere when someone else is using the car, we take a $10 Uber ride. Mm-hmm. And we have two closets, not two walk-in closets. One is a four-foot wardrobe Ikea on one side of the bed. And the other is a a four-foot Ikea on the other side of the bed. And whatever we fit in the closet, we can keep. And if we want something new, we get rid of something. And it's just now that we do have the means and resources to be able to spend more and do more, we just choose to do it on experiences and not on things. And uh, really the way our, our cash flow and our family dynamic works is and not everyone comes from the same place or is a couple environment. They may be single trying to grow. But for us, it's everything my wife makes is we have to fit our budget and living on that. Mm-hmm. And then everything I do and I spend my time on without an income that's investment, that continues to grow. So she covers overhead. Everything I do continues to grow. Where most couples are in an environment where they're spending a majority of both their incomes and they're trying to set a little money out of little money aside. We're, 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 and the hard part with that is like going back because we have a lot of friends who say the same thing. Like, we want to buy some apartments one day. Maybe one day we can do this. And I'm like, you're going to have to sacrifice a lot. Well, I've never been to there. Do. Yeah. <laughs> no, but and so, the thing is, is we're Yeah, and that's what it's like. It's like, are you, I don't want to move forward to that point because it, it sucks to go back. Like, I don't want to go back. I want to like. It'd be, hor- it'd be horrible. Right, right. I could tell you now we, we live in a loft and there's air conditioning. And my wife goes. I have a record air conditioning. It's a nice place. Air conditioning, a bay view. And she says, uh, if we ever buy something, I have two requirements. I was like, what's that? She goes, air conditioning in a bay view. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, do you know how much that costs in little Italy, of San Diego? She's like, so, and? and? Yeah, and that's the point of you guys as well yeah. is I have dough and projects. It's adding value and working. And I go to pay what we pay now in rent. For this similar place, we'd have to go buy a place for seven hundred grand in Little Italy, put two hundred quarter of a million dollars down, and we'd actually have a higher payment than we have now. Like, yep. How does that make sense? I'd rather have my two hundred fifty k at work for something that's going to yep. grow and pay for it in the future. That's and us. That's it's, honestly that's it's literally the same model. like literally. There's people, and Chris will tell you, no names mentioned here. People call me year after year and they're like, "I want to buy multifamily." Yes, I go great. Sell your primary residence, take the equity in there, go put it in the apartment building, and then go rent a house. This, but I can't do that. I go, then you're not willing to make. Then, like Crystal always says, if if you want it that bad, you're willing to make the sacrifice. You're just not willing to do it. They're like, well, I got to right. Just go rent a house. Take the half a million and put it to work. And then it's like, okay, okay, can, can I come to your office and we can sit down and like talk about how I'm going to do this? Okay, I'll call you like next week. We'll get together. So Never hear anything there's, again. <laughs> you know, there's another deal that Kenny yeah. financed for me. And that was, uh, yeah, that was the, it's a duplex I bought in 2000. And that was an interesting deal. 16-ish. Do you need more drink? Are you good? I'm okay. okay. I'm warmed up. Okay. So two, <laughs> two, I, I think it was 2015, 2016. I, you know, through this process and when I was building that custom home, I was still a broker. So I was selling houses to be able to pay contractors and going back and forth, opening the job, closing the job, working at night, weekends, doing burning the shuffle. And and all the while I was doing that, I had a client that I sold a fourplex for in Golden Hill. And Golden Hill was still a little rough around the edges. And she had a duplex and she said, hey, Rami, you sold the fourplex, but the twoplex is the only one left, the property I have in San Diego, and I moved out of, out, of, out of state. And I said, well, I'll buy it. And she said, well, I have to let you know I got a letter from a flipping group 
So you're going to compete against them. Remember that. And the flipping group offered for this Victorian duplex with some views from the second floor right of downtown, downtown San Diego. Right downtown. 21st and C, right three blocks from five. Right. Uh, they offered her a 430. And, you know, I said, Barrett, this is what I'll do. If you can give me 90 days, uh, I'll give you a $20,000 non-refundable deposit. It's yours. Uh, but I need 90 days. I'll give you 460, which was more than they were offering by 20 grand, I think it was at the I time. This. This and good. but the strategy was that I was going to buy this duplex as a primary residence. I was going to move into one of the units, but it had to meet the FHA requirements. And at the time, it did not. At so, the time, it looked like so a we monster. Came up with the strategy is you got to tie it up, <laughs> fix it. So yeah. you put money in before he closed. Wow. So I, I gave a non-refundable deposit. And there were two tenants living in the property at the time. So one, I had to negotiate one of the tenants to get out while I was in escrow so I could move in 30 days after in case FHA actually audited the property that I lived there once I closed. And two, I had to get it into a condition and shape where the heaters were working, there was no paint that was peeling, and all of those. So There wasn't even a railing for the um, steps. Yes. Yeah, oh so all this stuff. We are like, you know. So I literally was out there with crews Monday through Saturday. There were tenants living inside. We had the windows wrapped. He we didn't painted the place. We paint, I didn't even own the place. We painted the entire <laughs> exterior of the house. We did termite work. We first fixed the heaters. We did everything. And then Kenny came to the finish line. He closed the loan. I all in with the rehab and down payment with our own dough from saving from flipping. Yeah. And I think it's like 45 grand into the whole place and literally two years and one day for the capital gains. gains exemption of at the time we weren't married yet, 250 K. Uh, I bought it for 465, put 50 K in and sold it for 726, wow. two years and one day later using the strategy that you guys have talked about on your show. So it's real, but there's sacrifices, and part of those sacrifices are risking some dough, being there on the weekends, getting the place cleaned up. And, you know, my wife now being accustomed to bay views and air conditioning, <laughs> there we had no heat. The heater barely – you could turn on the heater, but you're probably going to die of gas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the carbon monoxide is real in that place, and that's why, you know, the – the detector. That's funny. And the other item was the tenants downstairs used to smoke a bunch of weed. That's right. I remember when I first came into the inspection, they were like, she would, oh But they, they paid me cash every month. They were on time. Yeah, they were cool. Whatever. And she'd go, tell them to stop smoking weed. I'm, That's what tenants do. Yeah. Like, you live yeah. above your tenants. This is an investment. And at the end of the day, it helps provide the cash to launch into the deals we're doing. So I, I just think a lot of people have a mentality. I call it the leapfrog syndrome. And that is... They want to do the big deals that people are doing now because they see they you know see those numbers and they need to make those to sustain or make enough money based on their lifestyle or to mm -hmm. make it count. Where when I started, I was making twenty you know twenty grand on a flip and climb the real estate ladder to where I am. And anyone who tries to jump in and go build a mixed use twenty four thousand square foot project. I, I'm fearful of, like I tremble. I'm scared for that person who thinks that they're just going to be able to do it and figure it out. And the issue is the longer you wait to get in the game, 
the further behind you are. Period. That's and I agree with that, but also to the leapfrog thing. It's funny because one of the programs we bought recently was the Ty Lopez one, and he was talking. He's talking about the ladder of like figure out how to make you know a hundred dollars a month, then a thousand, then ten thousand, then a hundred thousand. And he's like, you can't try and leapfrog over one of those. Every single person I've seen try to skip one of those steps has fallen flat on their face. Like it just doesn't end good. So to your point, like to go from you know like doing nothing to trying to do a $13 million project or whatever, like that's so scary because, yeah, I mean, you just don't have all those experiences to lead up to that, that you don't know what to, like, like winning the lottery, the people that win the lottery, that most of them go broke because they don't know how to handle their money. They don't know how to invest it. They don't know how to take care of it. So it's kind of the same thing you're talking about with the projects. You kind of have to take those stepping stones. There's no skipping steps. And I think that, that, you know, keeping up with the Joneses mentality, it's, uh, it's, it's fake. It's funny and, to me. And it's, just, it's, it's really and, – and one of the reasons in, in a market like San Diego is there's a lot of old rich people, parents that live here that have made money through real estate and business and just owning real estate or apartments over time. Mm-hmm. And they don't want their kids to go to Arizona. And what they do is they provide down payment assistance for their kids to live next to them Mm -hmm. in Encinitas. Because they can't afford it. Because they can't afford it and the parents don't want them to move away. And then all the kids do when they're in their, you know, late 30s and they just had a newborn is they go, oh, we just bought a house in Encinitas. And you feel, I should own a house in Encinitas. Well, what they don't tell you is that their parents gave them a half a million yeah. dollars down for the house. <laughs> exactly. yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you guys know firsthand. So, yeah. Yeah. what what percentage? I'm not talking about the FHA buyer of like five five hundred k and under, but if you're above 90, six six hundred k six hundred k and above, ninety percent. Telling you, ninety percent of I those would, buyers are assisted by their uncles, they, aunts, parents with the down payment. Given, somebody's giving them money. It's very rare that somebody our age is going to go. We, and we know some of them because they're the higher earners of our of our age. They're usually but, real estate brokers, you know. <laughs> that, that can no, 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 no do real that, estate, but, but yeah. it's very. It's, yeah. it's, I'm telling you, if it's some, there's a, there's a little money coming from mom dad. I'm saying the ninety, that's twenty grand, hundred grand, five hundred grand, and like you're right, it's just that's just how it goes. And what I just don't. I think what people is is. People are very – they look at these people. It's just uneducated. They never stop to think, how did that person buy the house or ask them the question of this? Because if they actually stopped and asked, they'd be like, oh, so you bought a million-dollar house and your parents gave you a 500000 So you have a 500000 worth. That's how you can afford it. So you basically you, – you didn't put – okay, so I get it. Like it just doesn't – that's why rental property is so good here because when people move here, I always say is it's – I don't even know the percentage, but it's probably 10 years before somebody could save money if they could buy here. Or they're like – I don't ever care about buying here. I just want to live here. I just want to get here and live here and be here. If I can have a place with an air conditioning and a bay view and I can afford the rent <laughs> yeah. and I can you know, walk to work and all that, then I'm happy. They don't want to own, you know, because owning isn't for everybody, you know. So I, I just think it's – so I want to jump in um, because I am interested in some of these questions and we can try to move through them quickly. Um, why did you pick – multifamily um to build you know because i know that's it and then are you focusing on anything else i know you said mixed use but why multifamily and the multifamily you're building i'm assuming that everything you're building is to rent not to sell like meaning you're not building individual condos to sell you're building multifamily to sell the, if you would sell the for whole rent. project the whole rent. rental yeah so i'm i'm old and i've lived through a cycle we're old then huh? you know the <laughs> yeah kind of well, what it's called the great recession i think we all crisis. lived through it yeah and I uh, felt the punch in the mouth. Okay. Yeah. yeah, kind of a 
wild story is I, I bought my first house when I was 20 years old. I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It said, go buy some real estate. So I looked at some CNN reports that said appreciation was good in Phoenix. And I overborrowed on my college, my undergrad college loan. So they gave me a refund for a living stipend, but I didn't need it. And I went and put a couple grand down on a single family home in Surprise, Arizona. Uh, that wasn't built yet. That was going to be completed in nine months. And between the time I put the deposit down, it was 135. And by the time it was done, it was worth 190 grand. And I said, this is easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love it. going to keep doing this. Yes. Let's do some more. <laughs> and what that did in my early 20s was gave me a really false sense of reality and a rising tide of real estate. And I didn't understand the cycles at my age. And that ended up getting up to an interest or properties that I owned uh, by the time it was 2006 to 24 homes. Wow. Which is wild. Yeah. And uh, sold a bunch of them in San Diego, California by the direction and educator Bruce Norris. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, who was a market timing guy. He said, get yeah. out of California. And, but the properties out of state I thought would do fine because they cash flowed. But what ended up happening in those states, Arizona and Florida as well, is there was more inventory and rents literally dropped 25% overnight and you couldn't find a great tenant. So a lot of those properties went back to the bank and uh, we rolled into the recession and that was my experience. So I've had my for sale experience in San Diego and I understand the cycles and I don't want to have any part of it in any environment. Um, it's not fun. And that's the reason why. And looking at these, and additionally, there's tax benefits of owning rental, rental real estate and depreciation over the long term. And I'm looking at growth because at my age, you're going to be 37 and a week and a half. Damn, I, he's an old man. <laughs> I can't, I can't m- make a mistake through another cycle or it's very hard to bounce back. So I take a more of a conservative approach. And I think that approach resonates with a lot of investors when you're going out and asking for money and saying, look, we're going to build a building. And there's a couple rules that I play by in development. And that's learning through the school of hard knocks. One is uh, buy right. And uh, 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 buy right means buy below market. So if you have to sell and something doesn't work out the way you want to build, you can get rid of it and pay all your commissions and fees and get your money back. The other part of buy right is to do a project which is buy right ministerial, meaning you don't need any community groups. You don't need anyone outside of the city checking the boxes before you can get a permit. And there's certain jurisdictions and areas in San Diego where you can accomplish that. Um, the second is clean dirt. And what clean dirt relates to is there's no environmental issues. Mm-hmm. And the other is clean dirt that the soil is good for a standard foundation. You don't need to drill caissons and pylons and do some crazy foundation and work for five months before you get out of the ground. And the other is, is it simple to build? Meaning, can you construct it just almost like a townhome project? You build a concrete podium, wood, wood framed above. It's not a concrete high-rise building. So that's what I live by now. And, you know, I've pitched, you know, the investor I'm working with on now for that. And it resonated with them that, hey, you can get the permit. It's not hard to build. It's simple construction process. And when they're done, we're going to rent them. It doesn't matter what the for sale market does. Where it is a challenge is it's a huge challenge because I am competing in acquisition against the for sale guys. And the for sale guys can pay a lot more for property 
because they're anticipating building the really exit. high. The exit is, is higher. Um, well, it was. Now it's comparable, but they could pay more for deals than I can. So I have to be very selective. But my background, everyone comes into real estate development from somewhere. I think this idea that you can go to school and get a d- degree in a real estate development is a false sense of reality. It's yeah. absolutely absurd. And the old school model was you were a real estate attorney. And when you were 45 and had saved some money and have friends, you start your own projects. Or you were a broker or you were a banker. Yeah. And you understood one aspect of development really well. And the aspect I understand really well is acquisition. And if I turn this bigot on, it's on and I could find deals. So that's awesome. I think that's probably the long winded. So multifamily, if you use safe. Um, so the other thing is, I obviously, because you're posting stuff online. So I noticed that you go to, I mean, I guess my question is, is that I can ask a couple questions. One, if I'm going to be a developer and I'm going to get started um, and let's say I did do a project, a small one, and I'm like, I have the money to go all in or I have the support from an investor that believes in me, whether it's my uncle, aunt, brother, a guy, whatever. um, I'm noticing that, you know, some people just show up, they build, they go home. They show up, they build, they go home. They show up, they build, they go home. But you're like, you're building, you're going to this event, that event, this seminar. Involved in the community this, and this, all of it. You know, politically, all this stuff. What is what is all the kind of stuff quickly what you're doing, but also what is the value you're getting out of that doing short-term and long-term that you believe? And do you think that this that's for everybody or that's just for your type of personality and because that's just how you are and your brain works and it it's, it's kind of like more towards you and not for everybody? Uh, Urban Land Institute is a, like an association of realtor, but for the development world. Mm-hmm. And I've been a member for probably the last 15 years. Like I bought a suit at Macy's just to go to their events at the university club. That was too big for me. With, uh, it's just wild. Had no idea what a developer did and just stuck around. And now I'm on panels speaking at the events. That's and really awesome. cool. And, you know, they've that organization, and it's really just a group of volunteers, have done a lot in providing mentorship for me. And I feel it's my obligation to give back. So that's the reason I do a lot of it is because it's been given. I'm still learning from mentors through the organization and to give nice. back. And then, you know, there's another aspect, and that's everybody cries and complains about policy and what the city's doing and what the government does and how bad they spend money. I believe but that is very true. They never get involved. Right. And they don't, because they don't feel there's a way to get involved and that their voice can be heard. But your voice can be heard and you can get involved. And most recently I sat on a panel with uh, city staff as well as uh, Circulate San Diego, a member that promotes, uh, organization San Diego that promotes transit-oriented development and bike lanes, rapid bus stops, and alternative uses to traditional vehicle. And I sat on a a panel for some policy change that's going to the city of San Diego uh, council and that's no parking required on new developments within a half a mile to major transit and I had my say as a developer and have been in touch with the city and believe it or not city staff has actually met with ULI our group and uh, other cohort our cohort of developers and said what are the pain points how do we get housing in the city and I never thought that would imagine that the city would actually come to a trade yeah. organization and say how can we get more housing and solve this housing crisis? So for me, I had a, a sense of you know, responsibility to take the lead and have spoken at 
a lot of the hearings and been involved in providing feedback to city staff. And um, I just think when the city and the community groups and the developers can work together, it makes for a better city. Um, and if the city promotes something as a developer that you believe in, then you better support them. And that's, that's it. There's some other organizations or groups that I follow or events that I go to. The New School of Architecture is downtown, eight blocks from where I live. They have a speaker once a week. It's free. Wow. It's open to the public, and it's a majority of students. And these are renowned architects from just, around the world. You're learning. You're learning. You're absorbing. You just as roll well. up, and it's not only learning, but these may be guys that I work with in the future, and that I choose as an architect on a project, and I get a meet and greet with, mm-hmm. and That's hear awesome. about That's them in their point. pitch. Yeah. So That's smart. It's it's uh, uh, you know as Kenny works out early in the morning, so I spend some time in the morning for myself. And then I push during the day, and then the evenings is typically some type of event and networking. And something I've done just recently, the last four or five months, is Fridays, like we're here now, starting at 2 o'clock, is everything after my job site meetings that wrap up around 1230 or 1, the rest of the day I book for people and networking. So every Friday I'm either walking someone else's project, one-on-one basis, not a group tour, I'm sitting down with people like you guys or I'm touring my project with someone who's interested that wants to see it. And every Friday I probably meet and network with one or two people a week just to grow my network. And Very smart. Expand. Yeah, because it was funny. I was um, I won't mention his name, but I, was, I told you who he was, I think, before. But I was meeting with that, uh, this politician I ran him last night, and I asked him about parking and development. He said... What's interesting is you probably know this is that the city or California or somebody came up with this thing is they don't really want to build east. They want to keep everything here. So if you're going to keep it here, you got to go up. So, but then you got to go up, but then we got to start agreeing about how to get stuff done. So he's like, we decided we don't want to go east and just keep building houses that way because who the hell really wants to live that way when mm-hmm. the ocean's that way? <laughs> um, and then he it's just the simplest said, way I've ever yeah. right, right? Yeah. <laughs> you can go east, you can go west, and you can pick your path, whatever. So he was just saying is we need to stay here. And even like if you look, um, I know we're you know Marina Boulevard is if like they, if they really talk about you know those houses there, but they're like, hey, we need to go up there. And people are like this is ridiculous. It's like, but that's what the city's fighting is. We need to go up. How do we start going up and all this? But I'm sure you know more about that. But he was just saying, I was like, wow, this is crazy. But. You know, we're, and that's why I was talking to him about parking. He goes, yeah, that's the other thing. Yeah, because when you go up, then what do you do with all the parking for No, I mean, we were meeting with a lady one time, and she's in Hillcrest. All buildings. This, this building has, yeah. it was there are 25 units in Hillcrest, and she goes, this building only has 10 parking spaces. And I said, so? She goes, what? And I'm at, a couple of tenants came out. I go, do you have a car? No, why? I walk here, I walk there, I walk there. And I go, have you ever heard of thing called Uber? She goes, yeah, I don't take it. I go, yeah, but once you take it one time, you will always take it the next time. And you know, even where you bought your your twoplex there wasn't birds yet or other stupid things are they're all over the place now so yeah, our, I just, our uber bill when we lived there was i i swear it was probably 180 dollars a month because <laughs> right. if, if you're if you're going 15 blocks away to south park to downtown to little italy just doesn't make sense to drive because you have to look for a parking and then and why get, go pay for a parking upset. and get a ticket and if you have a few too many drinks you leave your car you pay an extra 60 yep. bucks to pick it up in the morning you still have to take an uber to pick it up you might as well just take it there but there's some really interesting uh you know that it's interesting how technology is meeting real estate and a part of that is in this transportation space not just what are the birds there's actually a Micro mobility vehicles is what they're calling them now, which mm-hmm. is a fancy word. I like and 
the city's actually adopting that phrase, micro mobility vehicles, in their uh, in their in their city municipal code, which is acknowledging what these things are and that it's a way in the future. But there's something that Ubers and Lyft they just don't do, and that is, you know, on a Saturday, I'm sure you guys have all experienced where you want to do that power shopping run where you go to the rack for, you know, 45 minutes and then you go to Target and you pick up groceries and you kind of just make this run. Yeah. You guys live, through, live in Mission Valley, but you probably still drive and do these pickups and you have yeah. groceries and bags. Why do and we do that shit? I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> or, or they call it like the Home Depot Bed Bath & Beyond yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of Saturday. <laughs> when you, you know, Your second yeah. home, yeah. And so that's really hard to accomplish in Uber and Lyft as you have bags and things that you're carrying. So there's a, a company called Envoy and a few that are following them. And what their model is, is they actually, they'll park exclusive vehicles for exclusive apartment projects. And you can have that, that uh, vehicle in your project. We're looking at it for Hillcrest. Hillcrest, we have 13 units and seven parking spaces. So we're looking at giving up one of the parking spaces to a Fiat 500. The tenants can reserve it anytime they want. All they pay is 15 cents a minute or $9 an hour. They can drive it around all they want. They can reserve it on their phone. That covers gas, tires, maintenance, fuel, everything. They can rent it. They get a cheaper rate if they rent it daily if they want to take that trip to visit a friend in L.A. And they park it. They don't car wash it. They don't worry about it at all. So there's these, you know, this technology and private business that are filling the gap in the market between what you can do in an Uber, Lyft, or micromobility and what you need for those longer trips. So it's, it's interesting the way hopefully the city evolves and you know, the city adopts these type of kind of forward policies to promote housing. What do you think? Um, what do you think if you're a developer and you're trying to raise money? This is the question. Everyone um, asks this question. What are the questions a developer <laughs> should ask the investor? Because you, you know, it's both ways, right? Because you can get an asshole investor. And then what should the investor be asking the developer? So first, you just if you're raising money from anybody, you need to understand the golden rule is typically do unto others as you would want them to do unto yourself. But the golden rule in, in lending money is he who holds the gold makes the rules. Yeah. So that's it, period, when it comes to dealing with cash investors. I agree. And all I can share is that a lot of people have this idea about raising money, this institutional model that you put together a pretty package and then you go click send and then people just write you checks. Yeah. <laughs> it's know. not like that? Yeah. <laughs> and that's not the way it works in real life. And the way it works in the, my strategy that I've used is I start, if I know someone that has dough or has connections to dough, I start those relationships early and strong. Um, and, you know, on projects that I'm working on now, I will bring those either lenders or investors through early on and say, hey, I know you love real estate. Come check this out. And then they see the progress. And then while they're there, you go, oh, by the way, this is my construction schedule. And we told the bank 16 months. We're actually going to get done in 13 months. And I'm going to give it to you. Keep this in your wallet so the next time you come, I can tell you that we're where we need to be in construction. And then when the building tops out, I go, hey, come back out. And they go, Oh shit! This thing's like topped out already. Yeah, you remember that schedule I gave you? And that's the kind of 
process and multiple touches, I think you need to have that raising is? money. He's doing a sales funnel. It's his own funnel. Is that funnel. what it's called? Yeah. I don't know what it's Everybody's called. Everybody's doing a funnel. That's a funnel. Yes. He's bringing them in, sucking. Dude, that's great. <laughs> that's, it's called the developer sales funnel. So one of, one of the reasons I got involved in social media is, you know, most uh, a lot of agents and broker or agents, brokers or loan officers that get involved in social media, it's like, what, what is it? What's my conversion? Like, you know, they try to put, they try to uh, put numbers on everything and, you know, what did I spend versus what did I get for clients this month? And for me, it's long-term. It just goes, if I could create, if I could share with people you know, what I do and give a representation of me because I know I'm hardworking, I know I know my shit, that it will create credibility and it will create multiple touches more than I can do with them in meetings and physically. And then I know that I could create the credibility so when it comes for asking for money that they didn't go to the project physically the whole process, maybe they went twice, but they saw everything I was doing daily in between and they go, I want my money with that guy because Mm -hmm. I know shit's gonna get done and that's my strategy with social media. I know when I go to get a loan that I'm going to get better pricing for the loan. And I know when I go to raise money that I'm going to get better pricing or I'm going to have a pick of the litter from the investors that I want to work with. And that's a long-term perspective on that. With that. And so we were just, I mean. But if you don't, but if you're if daily you're not doing and you're not grinding, then I don't recommend doing no, it. No, because most <laughs> Take people. Take it you make it. Most, yeah. Because right. um, uh, Monty, Crystal, and I which a lot of people don't see because we don't, we're showing it, but in the background of all this, we're studying how many people? Like four, people? four or five people that are masters of marketing, the top, making 30 million, 100 million, whatever. And what we're finding is, is we tell people what you just said is the, the model of how I'm going to go on Instagram or Facebook or I'm going to put a postcard and I'm going to sell you something. Hey, here's this piece of paper. It's $2. You should buy it. It's just the best thing. I'm going to now, instead of that, it's more of like the new, the new marketing is educating. Mm-hmm. So instead of me saying like, hey, I'm Rami, I'm the best developer. I closed the 13. No, it's like, let me educate you through a process softly where I get your engagement and I get you. And that's all these marketers. That's why they're winning now is because they, it's just like Gary V says is when I was in his office, the 4D. I'd be like, what did he say? I'm like, guys. It, that's why he wrote jab, 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 right hook. It's give, 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 give as much as you can. Free, free, free. And then every once in a while I'll say, hey, this is what I do for work. And then jab, jab. So what you're doing is you're jabbing, meaning you're giving, giving, giving to the audience, right? But, it, but it's not just giving to you know potential investors in this select group that I think it's that everybody. May, I, no, it's I every, may be able to work everybody. with. It's like you know, my wife sitting here knows that she sees me on my phone and she's oh, who's that? It's like you know, my buddy – Scott Darnell, you know, awesome developer, does uh, assisted living, but he's looking at a new development and he was hitting me up yesterday and he goes, hey, who should I, should I use as a geotech? And I said, it depends on the type of project. Use this guy if this, if not, give this, give me a call and I'll walk you through the best strategy to set it up. And that's within the peer group. Yeah. But what people don't understand is it, your credibility goes a lot further when it comes from that investor's peer group than it does, it does you yeah. trying to sell it directly. Right. If they have a their best friend that says, oh, Kenny, that guy gets deals done. 
my, you know, I know someone that's worked with them and he does what he says he's going to do. That means more to them than you sitting down with your brochure or your, you know, analysis or any of it. Yeah. And the, you know, I say all the time and it's people don't do business. They like, they do business with people they trust. And if they like you, it's even better. But if they only like you and they don't trust you, they're not going to do business with you. Yeah, and I think that's the same thing with social media, though, is that you're essentially building trust with people because you're kind of consistently showing up, showing certain, you know, types of content and certain things and giving advice. And they kind of like people who've never met you can feel like they know you a little bit from looking at your page, it's, watching it, some of your videos. It's insane. I, I, I never you know, knew the power of it until recently, just in the last two weeks. Um, I got one private message that said, come to our happy hour. We are one of the biggest flipping groups in San Diego. We know you do development and we do 80 flips a year, but we, we, we see a lot of development opportunities that we can't do and nothing happens with those opportunities. So we want to create a relationship to see if we could funnel those opportunities to you and make a few bucks. And those are obviously off-market deals. Yeah. And then I got a message the other day, a conversation I just had with a local flipper that said, saw one of my posts. We've never met. I know who it is just in them doing business, but we've never met in person. And he said, give me a call. I have an off-market deal from you. And I literally called him on the phone, never met him before. We're talking like we're friends. He shares the deal with me that's over here in Hillcrest that I'm going to drive by and stack up to see if it makes sense. But that idea of, you know, the credibility and the network is it's not only on the investor or the lender side, but it's also when you turn when I for me, when I turn the spigot on, if I need to look for another deal, I'm literally going to post a video that says, I sold this property. I have money that's ready to invest. As a I know you guys have an off-market deal. I know you have an off-market deal. And this is what I'm looking for. It has to meet these requirements. This, 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 and this, and this. Buyer. DM me. I'm a serious buyer. I have funds. And by the way, you're going to double end it. And that, I think, is the power that's there because they see what you're doing. They see you're a real developer. And you guys have dealt with borrowers. And as a broker, I've dealt with clients that are just looky-loo, 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 that have no idea how to stack up a deal, have no idea what it's worth. And the biggest issue is they have no idea what a good deal is if it hit them across the head because there's no sense of comparing apples to apples because they've never done anything and they're not doing the research. Mm-hmm. So um, the next question is the one that we always debate people about. Which one is it? Is it about budget? Yes! I know. I was like, I'm asking it. After you... (laughs) You get to ask it. Okay. Well, first off, when you said you finished most of your projects early. So that's the thing. Is like, one, is it possible to stay on budget in a construction project? No. And stay on time? No. No. So when I say early, I I said, we told the lender it's going to take 16 months. But internally, we have a schedule of 12 months. If we tell the lender it's going to take 18 months, internally we have a schedule of 14 months. You will need a lag time. And and it, in addition to that, in development, it's not you're not pulling the wool over anyone's eyes. But what you do is, uh, you also do is you create uh, a picture to the lender that it's going to cost a little more and it's going to take a little more time. So it's a very conservative picture. And then internally to the investor you work with. You tell them it's going to take a shorter time and that you're going to do it for less money because 
the challenge is with construction loans and construction is if you spend a dime over the budget of which the lender is giving you the loan for, 100% of that money is cash out of pocket. Yes. So if the lender is lending to you at a 70% loan to cost, if you go over that, if, if you're within that cost, they're giving you 70% of every dollar you spend. But if you exceed that, you're going 100% cash out of pocket. And that's you going back to the investor sometimes, right? And that, and then you have to have a capital call. And you, it's the worst conversation you want to have with an investor. So we really have two pro formas. One is the one with the investor that says this is what we think is actually going to happen. And then one is that the bank will accept that's very conservative that says lend us based off this. So we build in a little fat into, you know, into our budget, but we don't tell our superintendent contractor that we have that fat at the end. And we don't tell internally the superintendent contractor that we have a few extra months in case we need to burn. So, and what's, but, and what do you like, you got it. Okay. There is over what, and what are you talking about? Like, are you thinking your mind, if a, if a project costs, I'm picking a number a million bucks. Are you saying it's like 10% average or so you're, you're automatically going to have a, what's called a contingency Yep. and in a smaller project under 5 million bucks, you're gonna have a 10% contingency. Okay. That number is in case shit happens. And what you can't do is the lender controls the purse strings of that. It's in fund control, which is the third party holding onto the money, but they don't release it unless they approve it and they have unilateral decision. You could tear apart their construction loan documents. You can say, no, I don't like that. And they'll tell you, go get a loan somewhere else. You yeah. sign what they have in writing and that's it. So to get that money out, what you have to do is you either have to show it was a legitimate change order of something you didn't expect or that you had delays that were unforeseen. Delays unforeseen is the last two months of rain that have slowed down every project in San Diego. So, but you really don't want to bank on that. So what, what I'll typically do is above that 10% contingency, I will build in fat at the beginning of the project. So on grading, I'll add an extra 20 grand. On foundation, I'll add an extra 10 grand. On podium, I'll add an extra 30 grand. Because as you get into the project, and if you can complete those items on budget, then that's an extra fifty, sixty thousand dollars. You take for now, those line items. Now you can pay for future line items that go over before you ask the lender for a dime. The worst thing you can do on a real estate development project with the construction lender is ask them for contingency at the beginning of the project. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah and yeah. I tell you that, and you may be surprised. Like, oh, would someone do. really do that? But they people do. really do that. And then what ends wow. up happening? Is the lender gets freaked out, and they could require that you actually uh, that you actually contribute uh, more money into fund control as a requirement of the deal, and then they get a third party to review your construction costs. And I know I'm getting in the weeds, but it's no, 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 for no. people yeah. who are involved in the business. So the question is this: so If you're in a deal, because let's say you're a developer. And you, you probably deal with this in apartments. Maybe mm-hmm. you have some reserve for a lender or a, a holdback for do. repairs that have yeah. done, and you have to show you get to a certain point. It's a lot easier, though, because it's just like, oh, do this roof or you know paint these buildings or do this concrete. But it's like one or two things. Okay, So, so and, for you, you have lots of and line your deals items. are not opening walls? Not typically. usually. Okay. And if they are, they're not usually getting permits or getting a lender involved. <laughs> Yeah, it's just like quick, quick. But yeah, as far as like holdbacks, what's a permit? Holdbacks and all that's so easy. But we've done, we did construction on our house, like when we did it, and we had to go the line items. And you're right, like these lenders don't want to. And your budget, your line items never add up. It's well, the plumbing was like 20k more, but the electrical was 20k less, and it kind of evened out. But the lender doesn't care because. 
they only want to pay based off that yeah. line item. Yeah. And so. if you have capital calls, um, and this is this is something I want to know how you look at stuff. I mean, you know where I'm going with this because this is always a common thing, and I don't think people understand. So it's like if if you put money in a deal, and your investor puts money in a deal, and there's two of you, you have you own a percentage, he owns a percentage, and let's say somebody messes up or you miss something, right? Whatever the hell it is, and it's got to be this capital call. Do you are you required to say, hey, we got to put in a hundred grand? I own twenty. I got to put twenty five. He's got to put seventy five. If I can't put that in, I get diluted. Or how does your agreements work? And the builder is a developer. Is a developer? Could they get just asked out of a deal because something happens and they can't capital call? And the guy's like, dude, I gotta. Or do you have? Are you what, one of the the challenges with uh, a strategy that well, there's I, I. Most people, I think, probably aren't real estate developers. They don't deal with construction loans and they and when i say construction loans i mean projects not flips Mm -hmm. and what most people don't realize is they try to make the leap from flips to doing like a new construction townhome project it's not it's not uh unreasonable yeah it's where people in their process want to go they do a lipstick fix then they move up up the ladder and then they end up adding two thousand square feet like the flip that you guys did that was a crazy addition remodel everything and then they want to get into new development and what they they don't realize is that to get the loan on that crazy remodel is way easier than getting the loan on the small development deal. Because to get the loan on the crazy remodel, they probably went to a private money lender or some local bank. They said they lived there. It worked. They didn't have to have a big balance sheet. But one of the requirements on construction loans that most people don't realize is that the construction lenders, they're really looking for a three things. They're looking at the mm-hmm. project. They're looking at the operator or the developer and then they're looking at the sponsor or the the money the, guy the balance yeah. the money guy right and the money guy plays a pretty big role you have to check the first two mm-hmm. boxes automatically but the money guy typically what they're looking for is after the cash is infused in the deal they want the money guy to have 50% of the loan amount in liquid assets so if you're doing a 3 million dollar deal so after cash is in the deal they want you to have a million and a half bucks in the bank, the money guy, or a stocks or you know liquid assets. So in the event there is overages or a capital call, they have the money to put it up. Mm-hmm. The other thing they require is they typically require a net worth equal to the loan amount. Okay. So they need a net worth of $3 million for that person. So the challenge there is some flippers... They have a model where they raised a bunch of money from family and friends and their aunt and their uncle and their neighbor, and they pool the money together. But when they try to make the leap, no individual out of that group has the ability or wants to sign on that personal guarantee. And that's a big aspect in negotiating with an investor on these projects. So you have to stop just thinking, do I know someone with a bunch of cash, but also do they have the cash reserves above and beyond that and do they have the net worth that they can show to the bank do they want to personally guarantee correct because that's a big thing for i mean people it's like on their credit and everything else people might have a problem tax return everything yeah so the going back to the question of capital call uh, i can't share the specifics of my current partnership no but like yeah but there's really two scenarios one scenario is the money goes in based off of your percentage of ownership in the property and the other is that your percentage, your capital call goes in based off the percentage of your capital contribution. So 
typically a developer, if there's equity required in a deal, it's not uncommon that the there's the debt, let's say 70%, and then there's 30% of cash equity that's required. Out of that 30%, the developer will put in 10%, okay. and the cash uh, or the balance sheet investor will put in 90%. But the developer is obviously adding all the value. So even though they're only putting 10% and the investor's putting in 90, the uh, developer may get 30, 30, maybe get 35% of the deal, depending on how complicated it is. And then the investor will get 65, 70% of the deal. This is just an example. So the question really comes down to your operating agreement. What does it say? Does it say that you have to put the money in based off your ownership for anything over, or do you put it in based off your equity contribution? And those are two very different numbers. I personally take the stance that a developer should have to put their money in based off the ownership because the developer is the one in control. And if they went over, it was their responsibility and they should cough up their percentage of ownership, you know, percentage of interest, 30 or 35% of that requested cash that has to come out. But that's that's my perspective. Yeah, that's a good perspective. I agree. I feel like that's like a professional way to look at it if you really want to put your money where your mouth is or you really are confident in what you do. It's also a good way to keep a developer on track, too, I think, it's, for an investor. And, and you, you understand it in deals that you work on or investors. Yeah. Or yeah. The, the biggest thing you want to get done at the – the deal points you really want to hash out at the beginning aren't just how to get the most for number one, you – but also getting your interest aligned. So if you can get your interest align- in alignment with an investor, that's mm-hmm. the number one goal you want to achieve because then you're just, after you sign that dotted line, you're both moving forward to the same goal. And what you're not trying to do is you're not trying to find out ways to get more equity or to be able to get more fees or delay a project or slow a project down. So getting your interest aligned is a huge, huge aspect. So one of... You know, there's a another aspect of an agreement that you can have, and you can have something like an exclusivity. So one of the challenges that lenders are worried about is they're worried about not only they'll ask you a question, and then they and they ask it kind of sneaky too, because they go, "Oh, what else are you working on?" Yeah. And you would think that they're asking it, and you know, the someone who doesn't know is going to say, "Oh." Well, I have some land out in Lancaster, and I'm building some <laughs> reserve for owls, and I have a side hustle <laughs> business, and look at me, and I have three other developments right after this. But what the lenders really want to hear is just this. This is the deal I have. This is my baby, and this is what I'm working on. So not from the role of a developer, but as an investor, I would highly recommend if you're putting your money into something that that developer signs an exclusivity to a certain point in the project where they can't work on anything else like it. It's really smart. Because yeah. the minute they work on a bigger project, where do you think they're going to spend their time? Their on attention's taken away, yeah. Yeah. And then your project's slowed down and not good. getting as much attention. Yeah, yeah that's smart. Um, so what is your um, – what's your kind of focus over the next, I don't know, year, two years? You're just going to keep – I mean, this project, the one that it's huge, is this, this gonna, it's just going to take your time? It'll push through summer 2020. Okay. So – through mid next year and that's my focus is wrapping up what I'm working on in Hillcrest and then focusing on that so probably the end of the year or first quarter I'll start looking at other opportunities and I have 
the market's shifting a little bit. So I have no idea where those opportunities will be or what I want to do. And there's, there's two ends of the spectrum in development. One is widget cookie cutter, do it over and over again. And the other is super niche, custom, mm-hmm. placemaking, really cool, soul in it. And I, I haven't picked a lane. Right now, this year is simply an executing year. And that's all I'm focused on. But What are you kind of seeing in the market when you said shift? What are you kind of seeing? Uh, what I'm seeing is a shift in the for sale market. And the price softening that I'm seeing isn't related to that people aren't optimistic and they don't want to own real estate in San Diego. It's There's just more inventory and there's more to choose from. That's mm-hmm. the feedback I'm getting. I don't deal with it daily. What What are you hearing and seeing? I mean, I mean, we can just talk about we just sold two buildings that we rehabbed. So, excuse me. So, this is related to the single-family single, single home, one-to-two-unit type of for-sale so market. I can talk on both. On, so, on that side, that's what I'm describing as a softening. Mm-hmm. On the multifamily side, it's as strong as it's ever been. So, yeah. So, single-family, what I – I mean, let's just take San Diego. Um, I'm not going to talk about luxury or anything because that can sway so much. But I think – in San Diego, the single family, I think what happened is, is like, let's just pick my mom's neighborhood because um, it's a perfect Delser. example. The Forest Ranch. Yeah. So everybody, it's like a, hall, a, hall, a condo. Or very, con- very good example because it's cookie cutter, everything reads. So exactly. It's, it's very, very, it's very easy to plants. read. This. Exactly. So she, they wanted to sell their house last year. So they should have sold a little earlier, but there's a medical things with my stepdad. So anyway, so. The last comp they had was 735. So all of a sudden, they decided to put their house on the market, and then four other people did at the same time. They do have the nicest one out of all of them because they spent the most money in it. Do you agree? Yeah. Okay. Everybody well, thinks that. Yeah. yeah. I would it, say it is. truly, though. like okay. design-wise, but, but they is overspent really, because they thought they were going to Yeah, they did a good so, job. So that's that. Right. So I think you originally started at, what, 800? Somebody listed 829, well, 800. And that, my point is, is that after it's a race to the bottom. four or five yes. months – Everybody took the house off the market because, like, yeah. So, well, but this is the thing though, because th- his parents were kind of first to go on, and their mind, they said, "Oh, we looked on Zillow, and last year the appreciation was so they took twelve percent. So twelve percent of the last sale of seven thirty five should no be to yeah. represent that appreciation." So, yeah. your answer to your question is: is the last comp they had is some neighbor I don't know solar house, and for probably around this number, and they're all like, "Well, we can't list now because that." I said, guys. What if that was really the value, but we just took this value and took an imaginary number and times it by this and came up with this and nothing sold it, but maybe this is what it really is. So my thing is I think houses were going up and up and up and they just stopped. And then people kept trying to list here and it's like then they're lowering, 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 and this is where the last comp was. So I think it's – as some guy said – I think the market's a little flat. Tom, like Tom, we're Ferry not had, Tom Ferry, real estate coach – had the number one guru that does all the market research for everybody, all this data. He said, it's not a depression. It's not even a softing. It's that the appreciation that was really good. We lost our appreciation. So I think this, rates are lower than they were three months ago. Kudos to a single family. And houses that people thought were worth 800000 that even Crystal and I would say, I don't think it's worth eight hundred. I think it's worth seven thirty-five to seven fifty because that's the last comp. That's what they're worth. So I think people that were hoping to get this number and this six percent aren't. So I think the market is 
You said so I think it's soft. I think it's flat. I think it's flat. Right. So I'm going on the record that I don't agree, <laughs> and I believe cycles are cycles in California, mm-hmm. and that when they start moving the other direction, that you get a lot of real estate agents that say. It's because the winter, it's because it's raining yeah, you can't yeah. show houses. Don't worry, yeah. it's going to bounce back in the summer. And obviously there's more sales in the summer. It's more attractive time to sell a house. Kids are out of school. But when markets shift over these you know, 15-year ranges, I believe it's the pendulum and the pendulum swings the other way. And I believe that interest rates dropping, it, it only accelerates or puts the brakes on that, on that swing of the pendulum. And... I'm not in it day to day like you guys, but from a high level, that's what I'm going to go on the record on camera saying. Well, this is what I say is we're going into a recession soon. It's coming. The stock market's going to get clobbered first. You already saw car loans, student loans, and this will always trickle to housing. But soon as I don't think we're going to have a 2008 because we didn't do all the well, shitty loans. Absolutely. But what's going to happen is you're going to have I think you're going to have a swing in prices. I could see I could see a 10 to I could see a 15 percent swing in prices. I said 10 to 20. Interest rates when we hit a recession. Well, I, say, we'll I be- say 15 and you say 10 to 20. <laughs> <laughs> you just want to fight yeah, with me? Yeah. And then, Kenny's going to be like it was but, 16. But huh? I think the beautiful thing for all yeah. of us here is that I think. Once we hit a recession, primes up. I think interest rates at ten years are going to come back. We'll have interest rates in the threes. Look, I think it's phenomenal for being in multifamily in San Diego right now. There's a lack of housing. We can't keep up with building. It's so difficult to get a permit to do anything in this city and to build anywhere and to buy land. And if you own apartments and you come into the recession, you know I have. Uh, it's uh, Randy. I don't know if you know Randy Gorman, the Hoy Capital guy. Yeah, guys, like yeah. Randy and Mike. So yeah. they they own a bunch of apartments in North Park, and yeah. they bought those apartments pre-recession. Yeah, uh, and I'm like Mike, like how did you hold on to your real estate in North Park during the recession? Rents went up. He goes, I collected rents. You know, well, <laughs> didn't you lose like weren't there vacancies and didn't you lose money? He goes, uh, we had a three percent vacancy across all of our properties, and some years we weren't able to raise rents. But then once the market bounced back, we pushed 5% for multiple years in a row in rent growth, and it made up for it. And we just didn't have the rent growth we thought, but we just continued to hold the properties. But the benefit you're going to get if we do head into the recession, and there's the demand for multifamily and rentals and even rent stabilize, is that you know one of the biggest opportunities for home buyers or for more home buyers than apartment mm-hmm. owners is home buyers can lock in a 30-year mortgage forever, really. And uh, apartment owners can lock in a 10-year mortgage. And if you can lock in that cheap rate on a project, it's the, almost more of a deal of a lifetime than adding value to a property in the long run. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think we sold our places in North Park really quick. Good. I mean, we were even kind of listed way late in the holidays, and we listed in December. We didn't have seriously. A, no, we, just out by just, the time. No, just how it happened, and um, and basically we just. It, I mean, it was it was pretty quick, and then, and I just think with single family, I think as soon as you see a dip down in rates, there's a lot of buyers, a lot of buyers, and they're all our age sitting on the sideline, and they're just waiting to buy and chomp it up because I mean we are delayed. And I posted this last recession. Right before meltdown, whatever, 2.6 million, we were in surplus of housing across the country. That's condos, house, everything. We built way too much. Now we're negative 2 million. And most of the multifamilies and things they built were 
There weren't there's a lot of luxury. There's going a lot of luxury. Yeah, yeah, there's also more. So luxury about, might get clobbered. There's a. I completely agree. Luxury. I think luxury already is. I don't know who downtown. And I don't kidding. know about you or me, but I wouldn't. I mean, downtown. Broadstone. I can't believe it. the one in North Park is like you could rent a, an apartment for like f- almost five grand a month. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, I'm sorry, but who's they, renting anybody, that? No, people that want to say they pay five grand a month. That's like a girl that walks out and says, no girl walks out of Northside and says, damn, I just paid two grand for these shoes. They're like, hey, <laughs> these shoes are two grand. I just got it for $200. Rose knows about that. You know, I mean, that's no, but that's what you say. Nobody wants, but people pay five grand for it. I'd be like, what do you pay? Like, four grand. Like, what? It's embarrassing. It's stupid. But yeah. they're, but those are going to get clobbered because they built it on that model. The, the cha- that's part okay. of the, the strategy of what I'm building is trying to land 20% above the old eight foot popcorn you know seven eight foot our popcorn stuff. ceilings our stuff. Yeah, our stuff. with aluminum windows that yeah. you hear the ambulance drive by yeah. and you hear neighbors yep. when their dog barks and so being 20 percent above that but then being 20 percent below the broadstone alliance type projects with the door guy and the elevators and the swimming pools because once people live there for a year none of them use that shit yeah none of them use the golf simulator none of them use the pools none of them use the door guys and uh what they really i think people are looking for and who we're attracting for our buildings is we're attracting people who want to live more, carry less, and who believe that the neighborhood is the amenity and who would rather live in a smaller size, a way to look at it. smaller mm-hmm. size building where they feel they know their neighbors, they're in a community mm-hmm. and they're, they're it's walkable. Safe, everything's it's right walkable, there. The gym, there. the coffee shop, the food, the bar, whatever you want. And our, the issue our, with the luxury too is I think the people who can afford that might just say, you know what, I can go buy a house. I'd rather go buy a house than like, live in an apartment with neighbors and not... Yeah, there's a... You know, when I read articles and these guru, you know, the really institutional guys, they come up with phrases for everything that you would just call it someone who who rents who could buy, right? And they have a name for it. It's called renters by choice. Yeah. And that's the name they use. And they have these categories of renters by choice. And that's who these guys are after. And I'm like, for some reason, they think that is a safe bet to build two-bedroom luxury condos in a downtown market where they're competing with thousands of new units of inventory that are coming online, but building middle-income housing that are efficient and more affordable in this, you know, adjacent neighborhoods is risky. And we actually had the conversation with lenders, uh, a specific, I'll name them, Torrey Pines Bank. Mm -hmm. We got an LOI for our project in Hillcrest and they're a dinosaur when it comes to looking at projects and where the housing's going and where it's moving. And they reflected that they couldn't give us anything close to the money we wanted because we have a three-story build, uh, three-story building and there's no elevator. And because we only have seven parking for 13 units. And there's five other banks that said, we love it. We think this is where the market's moving. We get it. And for some reason, the institutional guys and these you know big funds that invest these really high-end projects the issue is they're always looking backwards they're looking at track record and track record's great until you have a surplus of inventory that's going to hit that you're not planning for and until there's a recession and nobody cares about the swimming pool or the rooftop deck they care about Mm -hmm. what they can afford and one of the issues is there's just so many similar units downtown san diego that if you drive five south there's the newest one that's called i think it's called luma the edge of Mm -hmm. little italy and I have no idea how they got the permit, and I will sign a petition to shut it down. Because if you're driving five south at night, they have a TV screen on the rooftop deck with the pool with glass. The TV screen 
faces the five freeway driving five south and it's the size of a billboard wow literally so they're saying oh you had the rooftop pool we're gonna have the rooftop pool with a movie screen the size of a billboard we can watch a sport game (laughs) (laughs) and at some point it goes what's too much that you can show off in these common area spaces and i think you know it's going to be a fad the same way that i sat in a lecture last night that these experiential restaurants were a fad in the 90s i don't know if you remember rainforest cafe yeah, yeah. right uh in the early 90s planet hollywood yeah. yeah and these were the biggest things and they were growing and it was it was there's there's this idea of of housing that these developers and these owners have and it's not housing by necessity it's housing for pleasure and that's great when you're in a robust economy and people are making decisions in those housing options and higher end units because it's housing by pleasure because it makes them feel good and they love the amenities. But when they get a pay cut or they lose their job or there's they're, they're going to necessity. They're going to yours. And mind, yeah. yeah, and I don't I'd I'd rather be in the necessity category and serving that pocket. I hundred percent agree because that's what's gonna happen. As soon as they get a pay even Grant says, as soon as they get a pay cut Captain Ryan, you're going from your thirty five hundred. You're going to move into mine. That's twenty five hundred dollars. You're yeah. going to save a grand right away. You're like and, boom. And there's another aspect to it: is people who build these buildings, they think that it's going to be class A forever, but it's not. What ends up happening and becomes class B and C is what becomes class C is that building that was built. It was built forty years ago, and that was the shit in that neighborhood, and it had the amenities and all those things. And now it has. Say it's that, only new once. It's, yeah, it's that's only it. new one time. After that, it's yeah. not new anymore. And the, yeah. those become the class BC, and I don't, I just don't think they recognize it, and they're, they're missing, you, they're just, they're missing it. But what do I know, right? They, yeah. they're the big guys. Well, yeah. Rami, where can um, everybody find you if they want to follow you, learn more about you? Maybe one day give you a bunch of money to build a big project. <laughs> Absolutely, my wiring instruction. Uh, Rami Real Estate, so R A M M Y Real Estate on Instagram is the best place to find me, and look forward to DM them. hearing from you guys. Happy to walk my project in San Diego with you, uh, and always looking to network and meet new people. Cool, thanks, Rami. Awesome. Thanks, yeah, Rami. Thank you, guys. This podcast is a part of the C Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.